Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today is the final episode of Titanic Month. Today we will be discussing the sinking of the youngest Olympic-class liner, HMHS Britannic. Before we dive in, I must inform you, this story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today there will be some terms in the Greek, French, and German languages in which I am not fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. Once again, one more very important note before we begin. All three ships of the Olympic class of the White Star Line are beloved by many, including myself. There is an enormous amount of information on HMHS Britannic, some of it conflicting. I will be pulling from many sources and going off of the most common findings among researchers. Please note that as soon as I click post on this video, the information will be outdated. With all of the Olympic class ships, there is new information coming out all the time. There are many details I might leave out for brevity's sake, and no, I don't do that to hide information or confuse. If corrections are to be made in the comments section or additional information added, please feel free to do so respectfully. There's no need to get nasty with one another over 110-year-old vessels that none of us were personally there to witness or record information about. We want to continue to keep the comments section a safe, fun place to talk about our love of ships. With that being said, let's talk about Britannic. There's an argument to be made that HMHS Britannic has the second most tragic story of the three sisters. She never got to be a passenger liner as intended, with the ship sinking in 1916 during World War I. She was destined to be the largest, safest, and most luxurious of the three sisters, with improvements made from mistakes learned from Olympic and Titanic, but she never got to show these qualities off in a passenger-driven atmosphere. So, now that we are talking about design, let's dive into the details. Originally, RMS Britannic, which is what she would have been before she was requisitioned, was designed to be almost synonymous with Titanic and Olympic in terms of size. However, while she was still in the building docks after Titanic sank, her dimensions were altered, and she far surpassed her sisters in terms of volume, with an internal volume of 48,158 gross registered tons and a displacement of 53,200 tons. However, she would not receive the title of largest passenger ship in service due to the fact that the German liner SS Vaterland, later SS Leviathan, held the title with a vastly higher tonnage. HMHS Britannic was 882.9 feet long, had a beam of 94 feet across, a height of 175 feet from the keel to the top of her funnels, a draft of 34 feet and 7 inches, a depth of 64 feet and 6 inches, and she spanned 9 decks. Her passenger capacity was 3,309 people. 
As for propulsion, she was incredibly similar to her older sisters, being run by 24 double-ended and five single-ended coal-fired boilers, which produced steam to power two four-cylinder triple-expansion reciprocating steam engines capable of producing 16,000 horsepower to power the two outboard propellers and one low-pressure steam turbine producing 18,000 horsepower to turn the center propeller for a grand total of 50,000 horsepower. Her propellers were two triple-bladed outboard wing propellers made of bronze and one quadruple-bladed central propeller made of bronze as well. She averaged a service speed of 21 knots, though her maximum speed found in sea trials was 24 knots. Her beam was increased so she could have a double hull along the engine and boiler rooms, and six of her 15 watertight bulkheads were raised up to B-deck. Since Titanic's being below B-deck was one of the main reasons water was able to spill over into each compartment so readily. The turbine for the center propeller was originally supposed to produce 16,000 horsepower, but this was increased to 18,000 to make up for her wider hull width. Externally, her biggest change, other than having sufficient lifeboats, were her large crane-like davits, each of them being powered by an electric motor and capable of launching not one, not two, but six lifeboats. These extra lifeboats were stored on gantries, with the ship originally designed to have eight sets of gantry davits, but only five got installed before HMHS Britannic would be requisitioned for wartime service. Where were the rest of her lifeboats? They were alongside the ship and operated by manual Welland-type davits that were the same as the ones seen on Olympic and Titanic. I love her crane davits personally. As a ship nerd, it's just exciting to me. It's one of the first times I ever encountered these, and I just love the looks of it. In addition to these awesome gantry davits, there was space enough to store extra lifeboats within reach of these davits on the deckhouse roof. These gantry davits weren't to be trifled with, folks. They could reach lifeboats on the other side of the ship, given none of the funnels get in the way. With this incredible design, this enabled every single lifeboat to be launched on either side of the ship, so listing wouldn't be an issue. Genius! Seriously guys, why didn't they do this with every ship? Unfortunately though, even though the design of the gantry davits was genius, the placement of the funnels was not. They were too close to the davits and defeated this ingenious design. In total, Britannic was equipped with 48 lifeboats that could carry 75 people each, for a total of at least 3,600 people in the boats, reminding you that her maximum capacity was 3,309, so there was more than enough boats for everyone. They definitely learned from the horrific mistake from Titanic with that one. Another design change? The elevators on Olympic and Titanic stopped at A-deck, but on HMHS Britannic, they went all the way up to the boat deck. As for the ship's conception, J. Bruce Ismay and Lord Peary decided to build a trio of massive, luxurious ocean liners in 1907 to compete with the enormously successful RMS Lusitania and RMS Mauritania of the Cunard line. They wanted to surpass Cunard not in terms of speed, because they simply couldn't. Cunard had that down to a science. But they could surpass them in safety and luxury, and that was their focus. The names of the three ships, as we know, are RMS Olympic, RMS Titanic, and RMS Britannic, and these names were decided at a later date. But, my dear friends, there is a rumored name change with Britannic. Take this with a grain of salt, as this is a rumor from well over 100 years ago, and it's not confirmed, but is widely accepted as the truth, that Britannic's name was originally going to be Gigantic. 
There's some evidence that could confirm this, being a post with the name Gigantic sprawled across the top. And other sources are November 1911 American newspapers that claim that White Star Line ordered Gigantic placed under that name. And there are other newspapers from around the globe that state similar things both during construction and immediately after the sinking of sister RMS Titanic. Some handwritten changes were added to the order book for Britannic in January of 1912, but these only dealt with the ship's width and not what her name was going to be. At the time, she was just simply known as Hull 433. Archive manager and historian for Harlan and Wolf, Tom McCluskey, has stated in the past that in his capacity at the shipyard, he, quote, never saw any official reference to the name Gigantic being used or proposed for the third of the Olympic-class vessels. So that's why we take this with a grain of salt. As for what she looked like, paint color-wise, she was intended to be painted the same as her sisters, with a white superstructure, black hull, and red keel, with four buff smokestacks with black tips. After she was requisitioned for wartime service, she was painted white with a red hull, a green stripe down the side, and red cross insignia dotted around the ship in multiple places. She was equipped with green lights for nighttime as well as lights that lit up in her red crosses along the hull. Her smokestacks would all be yellow, and after being requisitioned, she'd have all of her fancier interior decorations and finishings removed, some of which are still in storage and exist to this day. Inside the ship, she had lovely accommodations for the first and second class with minor tweaks here and there, improving upon lessons learned from Olympic and Titanic. She'd have a grand staircase with a Welt Philharmonic organ built inside, and since she'd be requisitioned, it was never brought from Germany to Belfast, so the organ still exists, and it works. It was originally thought to be lost forever, but in April 2007, restorers of a Welt organ found that the main parts of the instrument were signed by its builders with Britannic, spelled B-R-I-T-A-N-I-K. A photograph of a drawing in a company prospectus was found in the Welt Legacy in the Augustiner Museum in Freiburg in Breisgau, Germany, and this proved that this organ was the one intended for Britannic. Currently, no one knows where the organ was from 1914 until it was found in 2007. Most of her flooring remained because it would be too difficult to replace, but fancy wallpapering, furnishings, chandeliers, and anything of that nature was removed, and she was painted slate gray inside. RMS Britannic, later HMHS, was first laid in yard number 433 at the Harlan and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, Ireland on November 30, 1911, on the gantry slip previously occupied by her oldest sister, RMS Olympic. It was actually only 13 months after the launch of Olympic and seven days after RMS Arlanza, a ship built for the Royal Mail Steam Packet Company, had been launched from the same slipway. Originally, the acquisition for Armist Britannic was planned for early 1914, and she was launched February 26, 1914, after improvements were made from the Titanic disaster. Her launching was actually filmed, including the fitting of one of her four funnels. There were several speeches given in front of the press, and a dinner was organized to celebrate the launching. Her fitting out, which is the completion of a ship, started immediately after launching. She entered dry dock in September of 1914, and that is when her propellers were finally installed. Not only did it save time and money to reuse Olympic slipway, but it made more sense than clearing it out to use for a smaller ship or a ship of a larger size when Britannic was practically the same size as her two sisters. 
Unfortunately, before RMS Britannic could enter her transatlantic passenger service as intended, World War I began in August of 1914. Immediately, all shipyards, including Harlan and Wolfe, with admiralty contracts, were given priority to use any and all available materials for the war effort. And this meant that all civilian contracts, like that of RMS Britannic, were slowed down majorly. Britannic would sit and wait her turn. She would be requisitioned, just like her older sister RMS Olympic. As naval operations extended to the eastern Mediterranean, the need for more ships grew to a critical point, and in May of 1915, Britannic completed the mooring trials for her engines. She'd be prepared for emergency entrance into service with as little as four weeks' notice, and her time in the docks as a potential passenger liner drew to a close. In the same month, on May 7, 1915, Cunard's RMS Lusitania was torpedoed and sank quickly just off the Irish coast. We covered her last year if you're interested. Check the cards for that one. In June of 1915, the Admiralty finally made their decision. They were going to requisition passenger liners as troop transports for the Gallipoli campaign, which was also nicknamed the Dardanelles Service. The first of these requisitioned ships were RMS Mauritania and RMS Aquitania, RMS Lusitania's remaining younger sisters. The Gallipoli landings turned out to be utterly devastating and casualties were mounting, so the need for hospital ships grew to treat and evacuate the wounded. RMS Aquitania would be transformed from a troop transport into a hospital ship, becoming HMHS Aquitania in August, with HMT Olympic taking Aquitania's place alongside Mauritania in September. On November 13, 1915, Britannic would finally be requisitioned into wartime service from her dock at Belfast, becoming what we know her to be, HMHS Britannic. She'd receive her hospital ship paint job, being painted white with red crosses decorating the ship and a large horizontal green stripe lining the side. She'd be placed under the command of Captain Charles Alfred Bartlett, a very experienced captain and Royal Navy Reserve officer who had achieved command status with the White Star Line already. After the war, he served as Royal Naval Reserve aide-de-camp, which is a personal secretary or assistant to a person of high ranks, to King George V. He was also known as Iceberg Charlie, since he and his crew had allegedly an innate ability to detect icebergs from miles away. This is the skilled, highly efficient captain that would master HMHS Britannic. With her fancy furnishings removed, in the interior of Britannic, 3,309 beds and several operating rooms were installed. Only Aquitania could carry more wounded, at 4,200 beds. The common areas of the upper decks became large rooms with many beds for the wounded instead of their intended lounging areas. The cabins on B-deck were where the doctors would stay, but the first-class reception and first-class dining room on D-deck being completely transformed into operating rooms. The lower bridge was used to accommodate those with minor injuries, and medical equipment would be installed on HMHS Britannic on December 12, 1915. After her medical equipment was fitted, she'd be declared fit for wartime service that same day on December 12, 1915 at Liverpool, and she'd be assigned to a medical team that consisted of a crew of 675 men, 52 commissioned officers, 336 non-commissioned officers, and 101 nurses. With her team of 1,164, she left Liverpool on December 23, 1915 to join the port of Mudros on the island of Lemnos on the Aegean Sea. 
Her mission was to bring back sick and wounded soldiers, nursing them back to health on their way back to England. Along with her on this route was her older sister, HMT Olympic, as well as HMT Mauritania and HMHS Aquitania. Later, they'd be joined by SS Justicia, known as Stottendam at the time. We have an episode on her if you're interested. Just check the cards. On her way to Mudros, she stopped at Naples to restock on coal before continuing on. After returning from her trip, she spent four weeks as a floating hospital off the Isle of Wight. In January of 1916, the Dardanelles was evacuated, and HMHS Britannic took her third voyage from March 20th to April 4th of 1916. Technically, her wartime service was supposed to be finished on June 6, 1916, and HMHS Britannic returned to Belfast to be transformed to what she was supposed to be, RMS Britannic, the most luxurious liner on the sea. The British government even paid White Star Lines £75,000 to compensate for the expense of conversion, which would be roughly £8,346,643 in 2023. They began the transition, but unfortunately they were interrupted and unable to complete the work due to HMHS Britannic being recalled into military service once more. The Admiralty called upon HMHS Britannic again on August 26, 1916, as she returned to the Mediterranean Sea for the fourth time on September 24, 1916. On September 29th, she was on her way to Naples when she encountered a heavy storm, and she luckily emerged unscathed. She left Naples for Southampton on October 9th. On her fifth voyage, the crew had to quarantine when the ship arrived at Madros because of foodborne illness. You might be asking, what does a typical day aboard HMHS Britannic look like? Well, it was very routine. If you were a wounded soldier, you'd be roused by a nurse at 6 a.m. and the premises would be cleaned up. You'd eat your breakfast at 6.30 a.m. with the captain making his rounds for an inspection just afterward. Your lunch would be at 12.30 p.m. and tea was at 4.30 p.m. If you needed medical treatment, you'd receive this between your meals. If you were well enough and you wanted to, you could take walks, though there were areas of the ship restricted from the wounded to keep things organized. Your day would end at 8.30 p.m. when you'd be readied for bed and the captain would make another round. If you were a nurse, there were extra medical classes aboard the ship for nurses to take since some of them were volunteers and had little to no medical training before the war. The ship surgeon, Dr. J.C.H. Beaumont, called her, quote, the most wonderful hospital ship that ever sailed the seas because of how efficient, clean, and nice the ship was. And so as a nurse aboard HMHS Britannic, you'd feel pretty lucky, maybe even at home. If the ship was relatively empty and there wasn't much to do, you could find yourself taking a gymnastics class given by one of the sergeants or an afternoon swim in the first-class swimming pool, or maybe even a game of cricket on deck. Of course, you still had to make beds, clean up after patients, and care for them, but other than that, HMHS Britannic would be a nice place to be, especially for wartime service. She completed five successful voyages to and from the Middle Eastern Theater in the United Kingdom with sick and wounded soldiers, though she would not be so lucky on her sixth voyage. At 2.23 p.m. on November 12, 1916, HMHS Britannic left Southampton for the last time heading for Lemnos. She passed her balter around midnight on November 15th, arriving at Naples for her routine coaling and water refueling on the morning of Friday, November 17th. Due to a storm, HMHS Britannic stayed at Naples until Sunday afternoon when Captain Bartlett took advantage of a brief break in the weather to push forward. 
The seas would rise again as soon as Britannic left the port. But by the following morning, the storms had died down completely, and the ship passed the Strait of Messina with no issues. She rounded Cape Matapan in the early hours of November 21st, and by morning, Britannic was steaming at full speed into the Kea Channel between Cape Suenin and the island of Kea. On board, there were 673 crew, 315 Royal Army Medical Corps, 77 nurses, and Captain Iceberg Charlie. To set the scene a bit, German U-boat SMU-73, commanded by Gustav Seiss, laid sea mines in the Kea Channel in the morning on October 21, 1916, a month before HMHS Britannic would find herself in the midst of a trap. At 8.21 a.m. on November 21, 1916, the largest British passenger liner afloat and Titanic successor would be shaken by loud explosion. At the time, it wasn't apparent whether or not it was a torpedo or a mine. In theory, HMHS Britannic should never have been too worried about sinking or being torpedoed. Under the Geneva Convention, hospital ships were protected by law and were not allowed to be attacked. In general, the rules for hospital ships and regarding hospital ships according to the Geneva Conventions are Number 1. They cannot be used to transport weapons, ammunition, or troops. Number 2. They must service wounded from both sides of the conflict. 3. They must have a white hull with visible or illuminated red crosses to clearly signify the ship as a hospital ship. 4. They must allow inspection or boarding from the enemy. And 5. Attacking or sinking hospital ships is a war crime. However, sea mines do not discriminate, and they'll detonate no matter what type of ship runs them over. HMHS Britannic had struck the mine on her starboard side between holds 2 and 3. The reaction in the dining room, where the blast was felt very easily, was immediate, with nurses and doctors instantly leaving for their posts. Further aft, the power of the explosion was merely a tremor, and so many there thought Britannic had struck a smaller ship. Captain Bartlett and Chief Officer Hume were on the bridge at the time, and immediately they knew it was serious. The force of the explosion had damaged the watertight bulkhead between hold 1 and the forepeak, which is the forward part of a ship, usually with the sailors' living quarters. Instantly, the first four watertight compartments were filling with seawater, and the boiler man's tunnel connecting the fireman's quarters in the bow with boiler room 6 was gravely damaged, with water flooding boiler room 6. Immediately, Bartlett ordered all the watertight doors closed, sent out a distress signal, and ordered his crew to begin preparing the lifeboats. A very refreshing difference in protocol when compared to RMS Titanic. The SOS signal sent out by HMHS Britannic was received by several ships in the area. Among them was HMS Heroic and HMS Scorch, but HMHS Britannic never received a reply from any ships. Though this wasn't the fault of other ships, Bartlett and the wireless operator didn't know that the force of the explosion had actually caused the antenna wires slung between the ship's masts to snap. Because of this, Britannic could send out messages all day long, but she would never be able to receive a reply. The ships that had received her messages were on their way. There were not only the damaged watertight doors in the fireman's tunnel, but the door between boiler rooms 6 and 5 also failed to close properly, and this led to water flowing further aft to boiler room 5. She'd already reached her flooding limit by this point, and while she was motionless, she could stay afloat with her first six watertight compartments completely flooded. Like we covered earlier, five of her watertight compartments went up to B-deck due to the failings of the Titanic disaster, since Titanic could only stay afloat with four of her compartments flooded. 
Her next crucial bulkhead was between boiler rooms 5 and 4, and the watertight door there was undamaged and closed properly. In theory, this should have saved the ship. Unfortunately, the nurses had opened the portholes on the lower decks to let in fresh air for the patients, and they quickly dipped below the waterline and increased the flooding, dooming HMHS Britannic. This was against standing orders, which is a written discourse that illustrates the commanding officer's views on how they want the ship to operate. Because of the open portholes, the angle of the list increased, and water reached this level and began entering aft from the bulkhead between boiler rooms 5 and 4, thus flooding more than six compartments. HMHS Britannic would sink. Captain Bartlett would not give up on HMHS Britannic that easily. He was still on the bridge, considering efforts to save her. Only two minutes after the explosion, boiler rooms 5 and 6 were evacuated. In 10 minutes, Britannic was in roughly the same condition Titanic had been one hour after striking the iceberg. Britannic and her crew would not be blessed with two hours and 40 minutes of time to evacuate. After 15 minutes, the portholes on E-deck were already underwater. HMHS Britannic quickly developed a serious starboard list because of the water entering the ship's after section from the bulkhead between boiler rooms 4 and 5. The shores of the Greek island Kea were to the starboard side, and Bartlett gave the order to navigate toward the shore. He was going to beach her to save her from the depths. Unfortunately for HMHS Britannic, the weight of her rudder and the starboard list made attempts to navigate under her own power difficult, and the steering gear had been knocked out by the explosion, so she couldn't steer. Bartlett ordered her port shaft driven at a higher speed than the starboard in an attempt to turn the ship in the right direction, and it was working slowly. While Captain Bartlett was trying to save the youngest Olympic-class liner, the hospital staff prepared to evacuate the vessel. Bartlett had given the order for lifeboats to be prepared, but they were not to be lowered yet. The ship was still going too fast. While evacuating, everyone took their most treasured belongings with them, with the ship's chaplain even retrieving his Bible. The few patients and nurses aboard were assembled, and Major Harold Priestley gathered his detachments from the Royal Army Medical Corps to the back of A-deck, and they inspected every cabin and room to make sure no one was left behind. So far, the evacuation is going so much better than Titanic's. Bartlett continued his desperate plea to save the ship, with the ship listing further and further to the starboard side and dipping lower and lower. The other crew was getting antsy and scared that the list would increase to the point that no lifeboats could be launched, and so they decided to launch the first boat before they were told. It was around that time Bartlett decided to stop the ship and her engine, but before the propeller stopped spinning, two lifeboats were already in the water on the port side, being sucked into the propellers and chopped up to bits. It cut almost everyone in the boats to pieces, killing them instantly. Violet Jessup, who'd survived both the crash of Olympic and HMS Hawk and the sinking of Titanic, was in one of these two boats. She'd been struck by one of the propellers in the head, but she was able to be scooped up into another boat later, and she survived. Bartlett was finally able to stop the propellers before any more lifeboats could be destroyed. After this, systematically boat after boat was launched, filled to the brink. The evacuation, though everyone was scared, was orderly and organized, just as you'd expect from the military. By 8.50 in the morning, 38 minutes after the explosion, most of the people on board were safely off the ship in the 35 successfully launched lifeboats. 
At this point, Bartlett assumed that the rate of HMHS Britannic was sinking had slowed considerably, and he wanted to halt the evacuation to try to beach the ship once more. The engines were restarted, and she began to move forward again. However, at 9 a.m., he was informed that the rate of flooding was increasing rapidly because of the ship's forward motion, and the flooding was already at D-deck. There was no way they'd reach the land in time, and so Bartlett gave the final order to stop the engines permanently. Two final long blasts were given from the whistle to signal to anyone left aboard that it was time to abandon ship. At this time, water had reached the bridge, so Bartlett and Assistant Commander Dyke walked off onto the deck and entered the cold Mediterranean Sea, swimming to a nearby collapsible boat where they continued to facilitate the rescue operations. As she sank, HMHS Britannic capsized to starboard, with the funnels collapsing one after the other as the ship's sinking rapidly picked up. By the time the stern rose out of the water, there was a loud crash. The bow had crunched into the seabed, snapping the front piece like a broken toe. Britannic was longer than the sea was deep, but she would founder, finally slipping under the waves at 9.07 a.m., only 55 minutes after the sea mine exploded. Violet Jessup described the final moments as follows. Quote, she dipped her head a little, then a little lower and still lower. All the deck machinery fell into the sea like a child's toys. Then she took a fearful plunge, her stern rearing hundreds of feet into the air until with a final roar, she disappeared into the depths, the noise of her going resounding through the water with undreamt of violence. As HMHS Britannic fell to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, she gained a new title, the largest ship lost in World War I and the world's largest sunken passenger ship, a title she still holds to this day. When we talk about Britannic's rescue in comparison to Titanic, there's a few factors we have to take into consideration. First of all, the temperature of the Mediterranean Sea, though cold, was considerably warmer at 68 degrees Fahrenheit, where the temperature for the northern Atlantic when Titanic sank was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. There were also more than enough lifeboats for everyone aboard Britannic, as well as help was much closer at two hours after the distress call where RMS Carpathia was about three and a half hours away from RMS Titanic. If you'd like to hear more about RMS Carpathia, we covered her last year. Again, we'll leave a link in the cards. The first rescuers on scene were actually fishermen from Kea on their kike, which is a traditional fishing boat usually found in the waters of the Ionian or Aegean Sea. These fishermen picked up many men in the water, though the exact number isn't known. At 10 a.m., 53 minutes after HMHS Britannic foundered, HMS Scourge spotted the first lifeboats and 10 minutes later, they stopped to pick up 339 survivors. HMS Heroic, an armed boarding steamer, arrived a few minutes before HMS Scourge and they rescued 494 survivors. Around 150 made it to Corisia Kea, where surviving doctors and nurses from Britannic were trying to save the injured. They used pieces of their life belts and aprons to make dressings for the wounded, with a tiny barren quayside serving as the temporary operating room. A quay is a concrete, stone, or metal platform lying alongside or projecting into water for loading and unloading ships, so alongside that is where they were operating. Because HMS Scourge and HMS Heroic had no more room for the 150 at the quayside, they left for Piraeus and signaled for more help to the remaining 150 people. At 11.45 a.m., HMS Foxhound arrived and swept the area, then anchoring in the small port at 1 p.m. to offer medical assistance and take on aboard the remaining 150 survivors. 
At 2 p.m., while HMS Foxhound was loading the last of the survivors, HMS Foresight arrived, and they stayed behind after HMS Foxhound left at 2.15 p.m. to arrange the burial on Kea of Royal Army Medical Corps Sergeant William Sharp, who died of his injuries. Two more men died on the Heroic, and one died on the French tug Goliath, and the three were all buried with military honors in the Piraeus Naval and Consular Cemetery. Shortly after the funerals, Britannic took her final victim in G. Honeycutt, who passed away at the Russian hospital in Piraeus. Of the 1,066 on board, only 30 passed away, some from the blast, a few afterward due to the injuries, and most dying due to the early launching of lifeboats. Of those who passed, only five were buried, with the rest never being recovered and being posthumously honored on memorials in Thessaloniki at the Mirkra Memorial in London. 1,036 people survived the sinking due to the quick thinking of Captain Bartlett and the remarkably smooth evacuation procedures. 20 Royal Army Medical Corps and 18 crew were injured for a total of 38, but they would survive. As for the survivors, warships anchored at the port of Piraeus were more than happy to accommodate them as well as nurses and officers being hosted in separate hotels at Farleron. At the funerals, there were many Greek officials and citizens in attendance to pay their respects, and survivors were able to be sent home, arriving back in the United Kingdom before Christmas of 1916. One more gravesite for a victim of the sinking of Britannic would be discovered by Britannic researcher Mikhail Mikhailikis in November of 2006, and it was one of the 45 unidentified graves in the new British cemetery in the town of Hermopolis on the island of Syros. The remains of the soldier were collected from the church of Ag Trias at Levadi, which is the former name of Corisia, and a maritime historian named Simon Mills contacted the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to inquire about the soldier. After further research, it was established this man was a casualty of the sinking of HMHS Britannic, and his remains had been registered in October of 1919 as Corporal Stevens, but nothing more than that is known about him. The remains had been moved to a different cemetery at Syros in June of 1921, but there was no record found relating this name with the loss of the ship and the grave was registered as an unidentified grave. Mills provided evidence that this grave could have been for Sergeant Sharp and the case was considered by the service personnel and veterans agency, and thus a new headstone was created for Sharp and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission updated their database to note they'd found him. The saddest part of the sinking was the deaths of 30 men, especially since they'd seen the ugliest parts of war already and were on board a ship to be treated for their wounds or to help others with their wounds. However, it is a shame that we were never able to see RMS Britannic in all of her glory. The plan for Britannic showed she was going to be even more luxurious than Olympic and Titanic to compete with SS Imperator and SS Vaterland for the Hamburg America line, as well as Cunard Line's RMS Aquitania. There were enough cabins in place for passengers to be divided into the typical three classes, and White Star Line was smart enough to anticipate the shifting tides in their customer base. The quality of the third class was lowered in comparison to Olympic and Titanic, instead pouring the money into the quality of the second class, which was vastly increased. As well as this, the number of crew was increased from roughly 860 to 890 aboard Olympic and Titanic to 950 that would man Britannic. As well as second class being improved, first class got a facelift as well. Britannic saw that children were part of their clientele and needed to be satisfied. Where Disney Cruises has kids-only areas, Britannic had a playroom built for them on the boat deck. 
There was still the grand staircase, just like the other two Olympic-class liners. But Britannic's fixtures were more suave, with decorative panels, a pipe organ like we mentioned earlier, and worked balustrades. A deck was devoted solely to first class, and if you were a first class passenger, you'd have access to two veranda cafes, a smoking room, a salon, and a reading room. On B deck, there was a post office, a hair salon, and revamped parlor suites, which were dubbed saloons in the builder's plans. Of all of the additions to Britannic learned from Olympic and Titanic, the most important was something we take for granted private, individual bathrooms for almost every first-class cabin. And this would have been a first on an ocean liner had Britannic been able to be fitted out the way she was intended to be. Most of the passengers aboard Olympic and Titanic had to use public restrooms, so White Star Line really wanted to push the envelope and impress the public with private bathrooms. The bathrooms were installed, but they were removed when the ship was converted to a hospital ship, and they were never reinstalled because Britannic found herself at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. The planned bathrooms were either destroyed or reused on other vessels like Olympic or Majestic, or were just thrown in storage to collect dust. Of the accessories we just mentioned, only the large grand staircase and the children's playroom, which became a storage room, remained after her conversion. Instead of an ornate painting and a clock like we saw on the Grand Staircase on Olympic and Titanic, HMHS Britannic had a blank white wall under her beautiful glass dome, which remained. As for the largest passenger liner wreck in the ocean, she rests at 37 degrees, 42 minutes, 5 seconds north, 24 degrees, 17 minutes, and 2 seconds east, in roughly 400 feet of water. Jacques Cousteau, the world-renowned French naval officer, oceanographer, filmmaker, and author, discovered Britannic's wreck on December 3, 1975, and he explored it then. He filmed the expedition, and he also held a conference on camera with several of the surviving personnel from the ship sinking, including Sheila Macbeth Mitchell, who had survived the sinking. In 1976, while diving, Cousteau and his fellow divers entered the ship for the first time, which must have just been haunting. At the time, it wasn't known what sunk Britannic, and judging by the damage to her plates, he surmised it was a single torpedo. HMHS Britannic lies on her starboard side, which hides where the mine exploded. The huge hole is visible just beneath the forward well deck, and the bow is greatly deformed due to it smacking into the seafloor while the ship was sinking. The bow is only still attached to the rest of the ship by fragments of sea deck. The crew's quarters in the forecastle are still in pretty good shape, with many of the details still easy to make out, and the holds were found to be empty. Two cargo cranes and the forecastle machinery in the forward well deck are very well preserved, almost pristine as if they could be used again. The foremast is unfortunately bent and lies on the seabed near the wreck, but the crow's nest is miraculously still attached. Originally, it was believed that the bell was lost, but during a dive in 2019, it was found. It had fallen from the mast and it lies directly on the crow's nest on the seafloor. The first funnel was found a few yards away from the boat deck and is in decently good shape, with the other three funnels being in the debris field near the stern. There are chunks of coal scattered about the wreck. Dr. Robert Ballard, who we talked about earlier this month, visited Britannic in mid-1995, with the trip being filmed by popular American science television program Nova. He used advanced side-scan sonar to scan the wreck, and images of the wreck were solely obtained using ROVs. They did not dive inside the wreck like Cousteau had done two decades earlier, and Ballard observed the funnels to be in good condition. He searched for mine anchors, possibly for the mine that detonated on Britannic, but he was unable to find any. 
In August of 1996, the wreck was purchased by Simon Mills. Subsequently, he wrote two books about the ship, Britannic, The Last Titan, and Hostage to Fortune. To this day, he still owns the wreck of HMHS Britannic. Led by Kevin Gurr, an international team of divers dived the wreck using open-circuit trimix diving techniques to film the wreck. This film was captured in the brand new at the time DV digital format. For anyone who either isn't old enough to remember that or is unfamiliar with it, DV refers to a family of codecs and tape formats used for storing digital video, and it was first launched in 1995 by Sony and Panasonic. It was strongly associated with the switch from analog to digital desktop video production in the late 1990s and early 2000s. You might have heard of its most popular format, Mini-DV. One year later, in September of 1998, a team of divers used diver propulsion vehicles, which are items of dive equipment used by scuba divers to increase range underwater. They're like an underwater scooter almost that you lay on top of and it propels you around. The team was able to make more man dives down to HMHS Britannic and produced more images of her than had ever been seen. And this included a video of the helm, a telemotor, and four telegraphs on the captain's bridge, which is just incredible that these all survived. Global Underwater Explorers, or goo divers, that were used to cave diving led the first extensive deep dive into the interior of Britannic in 1999, and video of this dive was broadcast by BBC, the History Channel, National Geographic, and the Discovery Channel. Carl Spencer led his first expedition into Britannic in September of 2003, and this was the first dive to have all of the divers using closed-circuit rebreathers. A closed-circuit rebreather employs advanced technology to recycle breathing gas in a closed-loop system that makes the underwater experience of diving practically bubble-free, which is essential when looking at a shipwreck. Diver Lee Bishop took some of the first photos from inside Britannic, and his dive partner Rich Stevenson found that many of the watertight doors were curiously open. The explanation for this is that the mine detonated at the same time that there was a shift change, so there was inconsistency in getting all of the doors closed. A different explanation is that the explosion may have just warped some of the door frames, which would make it impossible to close the doors. In this expedition, mine anchors were located off the wreck by sonar expert Bill Smith, and this officially confirmed the German records of U-73 that Britannic was sunk by a single mine, and that the ship ended up sinking from this as well as the open watertight doors and portholes on EDAC. Spencer's expedition was broadcasted all over the world for years to come by the UK's Channel 5 and National Geographic. The next expedition to HMHS Britannic was funded and filmed by the History Channel and took place in 2006. This expedition saw 14 skilled divers brought together to try to determine why Britannic sunk as quickly as she did. After much preparation, they finally dived down to Britannic on September 17, 2006. However, their dive was cut short due to silt being kicked up and stirred around, which caused zero visibility conditions and almost cost the lives of two of the divers. Low visibility can be a death sentence when diving a wreck like HMHS Britannic. There was one last dive attempted to make it into one of Britannic's boiler rooms. However, it was found that photography this deep into the wreckage would actually violate a permit issued by a forate of underwater antiquities, a department within the Greek Ministry of Culture. This is important because technically Britannic is in Greek waters.
There was a last-minute plea given to try and get permission for this dive, but partly due to language barriers and partly not, it was turned down. Subsequently, the expedition was unable to uncover what caused HMHS Britannic to founder in only 55 minutes. Recognizing how important this discovery could be, the Ephorate of Underwater Antiquities later sent an invitation to revisit the wreck under more relaxed terms. On May 24, 2009, Carl Spencer was taking his third dive to Britannic for another underwater filming expedition when he would unfortunately lose his life in Greece due to equipment difficulties while filming the wreckage for National Geographic. Another diver, British technical diver Tim Saville, died on September 29, 2019 during the 393-foot dive to Britannic's wreck. This is just a lesson for everyone. Even incredibly skilled dive masters die while diving this beautifully haunting vessel. So please, do not attempt to dive the wreck of Britannic. Leave this one for the professionals. There was an expedition organized in 2012 by Paul Linyan and Alexander Sortiru. And in this mission, divers using rebreathers installed and recovered scientific equipment used for environmental purposes. They were trying to uncover how fast bacteria are eating at Britannic's iron plating in comparison to her sister ship. Let's talk for a minute about this bacterium. In 2010, a species of bacteria isolated from rusticles recovered from the wreck of RMS Titanic was discovered, and it was named Halomanos Titanicae. It is a gram-negative, halophilic species of bacteria, and due to the actions of it and microbes like it, Titanic may disappear by 2030, according to one of the researchers who first discovered it, Henrietta Mann. This bacterium and other bacteria like it could be to blame for any shipwrecks being destroyed slowly and the iron being eaten away. We aren't going to get into all of the scientific breakdown of the bacteria, but know that it corrodes steel by reducing iron 3 and iron 2 when oxygen is not available as an electron acceptor. In aerobic conditions, it inhibits corrosion by consuming dissolved oxygen. And in the case of Titanic and other shipwrecks, the bacteria accelerates corrosion of these structures since levels of dissolved oxygen in the deep ocean is very low. In the case of Britannic, I would assume it would be inhibiting corrosion by consuming dissolved oxygen. But this information isn't readily available as I haven't been able to find the results of the dive. However, the wreck may speak for itself. HMHS Britannic is still in incredible condition, which divers still able to explore the inside of the ship pretty easily. The legacy HMHS Britannic leaves behind is one that was cut short because of wartime violence, having very few victims thanks to an amazing evacuation, and never having the opportunity to enter passenger service as intended. Because of these reasons, HMHS Britannic is not as notorious as Titanic, but I believe she is more well-known than Olympic simply because Olympic did not sink and Britannic did. However, that is merely my opinion. She was largely forgotten by the public until her wreckage was discovered in 1976 and her memory was brought back to the forefront. White Star Line did end up reusing her name, which as we know is the third time this name was used since HMHS Britannic was the second ship in the line with that name. MV Britannic was put into service in 1930, and she was the last ship to fly the White Star Line flag when she retired in 1960. After the war was over in 1918, following the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to hand over some of its ocean liners as war reparations, two of which were given to White Star Line. The first of these ships was the Bismarck. No, not the famous Bismarck battleship of World War II. 
and she was given to White Star Line to replace Britannic and renamed RMS Majestic, being the second ship of that name. The second ship was the Columbus, which would be renamed RMS Homeric, and it replaced the other ships lost by White Star Line during the conflict, one of which being SS Justicia, which we covered last year, if you are interested. In pop culture, the ship is not as popular as Titanic, but she did get her own 2000 television movie called Britannic. This film featured Edward Atherton, Amanda Ryan, Jacqueline Bissett, and John Rhys Davies. This film was a fictional account featuring a German agent sabotaging HMHS Britannic due to the fictional idea that HMHS Britannic was secretly carrying munitions. There was a BBC Two documentary on the ship called Titanic's Tragic Twin, The Britannic Disaster, and this was broadcast to the public on December 5th, 2016. The documentary was presented by Kate Humble and Andy Torbett, and it used the most up-to-date film of the wreck and even spoke to the relatives of the survivors, since all of them had since passed away by this time. The Deep by Alma Katsu, published in 2020, is set partly on Britannic and partly on Titanic, and it focuses on the sinking of both sister ships. The Gigantic, which is of course the rumored name that was changed for Britannic, is the apparent setting of a 2009 escape room style video game called Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors. If you're watching on YouTube, I hope you enjoyed the footage I captured from the very realistic museum-style video game, Britannic, Patroness of the Mediterranean. It is not yet completed, and there hasn't been word for a long time from the developers on whether or not they will return to this game, but I surely hope they do. For anyone who would like the game, it is available on Steam for purchase. This is it for HMHS Britannic. Her birth, her life, and her death. I hope this episode can commemorate the memories of those who served aboard HMHS Britannic and all of those who lost their lives. Rest in peace to the victims, and I hope to keep their story alive. Sadly, my friends, this also means the end of Titanic Month. Thank you all so much for going on this journey with me. It's been amazing, and it is the thing I am the most proud of on this channel thus far. Thank you so much for your endless support. It means the world to me. Thank you for tuning into the last episode of Titanic Month on Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a 5-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Next Sunday, I will be taking one day off from my mental health. Tune in on Sunday, May 14th for the fire and capsizing of SS Normandy, a beautiful 1930s French ocean liner. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.